Podcast. What is up, college lacrosse fans? You're watching episode 138 of the Lax Factor Lacrosse Podcast. And today we're going to change the Wednesday format up. As I've said, instead of re-previewing uh, games for this weekend, we're going to do the previews and the Saturday morning live stream today. We're going to talk about what we've learned so far and what this past weekend told us about the teams that we're about to watch play this next week. So today we're going to talk a little bit about Georgetown and their defense. We're going to talk about how Richmond kind of made Chris Gray look mortal. We're going to talk about how Syracuse had an epic meltdown and what that means for the Syracuse defense, because I think the, the big problem was there. Uh, and then we're going to talk about guys that had big days scoring the rock. We'll go through and we'll start kind of showcasing dudes who had big days across all divisions. And we have more uh, teams struggling at off-ball defense, teams struggling with on-ball defense, all that crap. Before I get into it, though, as always, be sure to like, subscribe, hit the notification bell. Just subscribe. If you're watching this video, the easiest thing you can do to support us, subscribe right now. We're approaching 10,000 subscribers, and we want to get there before the end of this season. So if you could help us do that, that would be awesome. And if you want to support us beyond that, you can go to laxfactor.com. You can get swag, t-shirts, hats, coffee mugs, all sorts of other stuff to help support what we're doing here so we can do more of what we're doing here. Now, let's get into it. First thing I want to talk about in terms of what we've learned so far, because we've, we're learning things now after a full weekend of seeing kind of everybody play, and we still haven't seen everybody. We still haven't seen Notre Dame play, which is one of the games I'm excited about this weekend, which we'll touch on. But let's get into Georgetown. One of the things we learned on Sunday, uh, we did, I didn't get to kind of do a full breakdown of this game, but Georgetown can play defense. Like, they can play defense really well. They played a Villanova team that did lose Connor Kirst, their best player, and, you know, they should have been able to enjoy Connor Kirst in all his glory for one more year, but he ends up going to Rutgers, and Rutgers enjoyed the living crap out of him, and Georgetown doesn't, or uh, Villanova doesn't get to. So that hurt Villanova, but I still did not in any manner expect the outcome that we got. They hold, held uh, Villanova to a single goal, an absolute beatdown, 16-1. to 1. And, I mean, that's the way you beat a team down that is just so much, so far beneath you that, it, that it's just it's barely worth playing the game when you beat someone 16-1. to 1. I did watch a touch of it and got, saw some highlights, and it didn't come off that way. But the reality is that Georgetown plays smothering defense all over the field, between the boxes, you know, in six-on-six six sets. They, they're just incredible. Alex Mazzone caused three turnovers. Gibson Smith and James Donaldson each caused two. I know Gibson Smith had two ground balls as well as part of that mix. Owen McElroy, one of the best goalies in the country, if not the best goalie in the country, he made six saves versus just one goal against, which is nuts. And the one thing I took away from this as I looked at the box score because I didn't watch the full game was that we don't want to get it twisted. They're not just good on defense. They're obviously good all over the field. Jake Carraway, returning attackman, eight goals and one assist in this game, which is crazy. I think he's, they said he's one goal off of breaking the Georgetown all-time uh, goals record, and he's on pace to get right up there with points as well. Uh, and then five guys below him had at least two points beyond that. I think two or three guys had three points, and then a couple of guys had two points. So they're filling it out below Caraway. So they're good offensively, more than good offensively, and they're just next level, possibly the best defense in the country. They outshot Villanova 42 to 28, on cage 25 to 8. 
they outshot. Villanova only put eight shots on Cage all day. What that tells me is they're still getting shots off. They got 28 shots off on the day, but of those 28 shots, they're being pestered. Guys are on their hands, and you're not getting good quality shots off to the point you're putting them on Cage. They forced Villanova into 19 turnovers. 11 of those came over the second half. Clears, Georgetown was a perf- almost perfect 21 to 22. Nova was only 13 of 17. And this is a Georgetown team that didn't get to play fall ball and didn't get to organize at all until this spring where they got everybody on campus. All their freshmen, none of them were together. Um, ground balls, Georgetown won that battle 27-12. Face-offs, Georgetown won that with 12 face-offs. I think they won at 12-8. My note, I, I cut the last part off. Historically, Georgetown has only given up one goal twice before, a 16-1 win over Catholic in 1980 and a 9-1 win over Vermont in 2005. In 2020, they held Lafayette to three goals, and they held Towson to four in wins. In 2018, they held Denver to three goals. In 2016, they held... Uh, they lost to Lehigh. Oh, no, they got held to three goals and a loss to Lehigh. So that's kind of the history of them. But, you know, holding the team to one goal is a huge accomplishment. So we know that Georgetown can play defense, and it'll be really good to see them play again this weekend to see if they can continue that smothering, absolute just massacre on the defensive side of the ball. Now, who does G-Town get this weekend? They have St. John's at home this weekend. So that'll be a good test for them. Another thing we learned was that Richmond – proved it's possible to hold Chris Gray to mere pedestrian slash mortal numbers. Gray's touches were limited. He only had five shots, one goal, one assist in the game. They did, he didn't play terrible. He didn't turn the ball over a ton. It just seemed that as part of the flow, he didn't get the rock as much. Now, I don't know. I did watch the game, and it was really hard to pinpoint what they did differently that other teams didn't do in in terms of allowing Chris Gray to run all over the place. And I think the main thing that it looked like Richmond did that I haven't noticed other teams do, Richmond pressured them everywhere. A lot of teams, I think, as you're trying to prepare for a team with a boatload of offensive firepower, you tend to try to stay at home. You tend to try to play really good help defense. The problem with that, especially when you're staying at home and you're not out there harassing guys, especially players that can dodge and feed, is you end up opening things up for other people. You end up getting beat to the cage, and then the slide gets there, but it gets there in a perfectly timed sequence that allows the offense to then counter, you know, throw the ball back against the slide, find the open man on the backside, whatever it might be. I think what Richmond did that disrupted that North Carolina flow was they came out and they pressed them everywhere. At least in the first half, they came out, they were pressuring midfielders all the way up up at the midfield area. And the benefit of that is you end up, you end up getting beat early, you end up being able to slide early, and then the rest of the defense can kind of recover. Now, I felt like they kind of played a very chaotic brand of defense in the first half where it almost was like, oh, crap, we got caught, and then boom. It was just chaotic enough that North Carolina was like, what the heck is this? And from my own coaching experience, we I, when I coached at Broome, we used to have to play Onondaga, OCC, every year. They were in our league. We had to play them every year, and usually with the playoffs, sometimes we'd end up playing them twice. In, uh, we'd play them once during the regular season, and then we'd get smoked by them in the playoffs once. Um, and one of the problems we always had was, what, how do you defensively, how do you attack them? Do you want to come out and just press them everywhere, get beat, and then get beat on more dodges and goals? Or do we want to try to stay home and then play really good help defense and try to stop them that way? And, and the answer almost ended up, the, the best we ever played them was a year, the entire first quarter, we put our poles on the island, and meaning we didn't slide for our poles. We let our poles get beat, and if they got beat, they just had to keep trailing that attackman who went to the cage with a one-on-one with our goalie. 
Now, we had an incredible goalie that year, and we ended up only losing to them 18-1 to in that game. And at that point, that was the closest that anyone had played them. I think that year, that was like the closest anyone had played them, except maybe like Nassau and like Anne Arundel in the playoffs or something like that. 18-1. to We didn't take a shot in the first half. We just played stall ball on offense the whole time. And then on defense, we, we kept our guys on an island, and then we went into a light help package after that first quarter. But the result was that first quarter, dude, I remember Brandon Storier was one of the attackmen there. He's a big dude. And he ended up playing, I think, at Limestone later on. But he had beat one of our defenders to the rack. And you could tell he didn't, they didn't know what to do. No one had put them, no one had played kind of an island defense on them. So when these attackmen were beating our guys, they started throwing the ball away. They didn't know what to do. They, they weren't prepared to get past a man and then have a clear lane to the goal with nothing but that pest over their shoulder harassing them. So it actually worked for us. And I felt, I feel like there was a little bit of that in the Richmond game. Not that Richmond didn't slide. Richmond did slide, but there was a lot of let's pressure the crap out of them. Let's just present chaos all over the field. Russ Bolt ended up playing pretty well in cage and made some saves. And the end result was gray didn't have his best game, despite the fact that Carolina won. Let's not forget Carolina did win and other guys stepped up. So that's a really good sign for North Carolina. But it is also a good sign for other teams that there is some sort of formula to trying to disrupt that offense so you can try to keep them to a pedestrian number of goals over the course of the game, which um, Richmond did. And Richmond's a really, and the other thing we learned is Richmond's a really good defensive team to be able to do that. You could make the argument, well, I mean, they gave up a boatload of goals and still lost, but they held North Carolina to a degree in check in a way that other teams have not done yet, despite that score and, and the loss at the end of it. Eh, we get into another thing here, Syracuse and their epic meltdown. And I call it an epic meltdown because when you're up 6-1 and you go up 6-1 the way they did, to have things fall apart the way they did after, is it like they, it, it's, it's crazy. They held a 6-1 lead late in the first quarter. They did end up giving up a goal with like 50 seconds left or less at the end of the first to make it 6-2. Army outscored Syracuse after they had that 6-1 lead, 17-5 over the rest of that game. They outscored Syracuse 6-1 over the first and second. Uh, 6-1 over the second quarter and 5-1 over the third. So 11-2 over the middle two quarters, the second and the third. And oddly, if you look at the stat line, it's the only place that Army beat Syracuse. The only place Army beat Syracuse was on the scoreboard. Syracuse outshot them. They, they had more ground balls. Neither of them played well man up, man down. When you look at the stats, you're like, Syracuse had to have won this game by two or three goals, maybe more. And the opposite's true. And I think what we really saw and what was really exposed in Syracuse beyond the COVID, uh, what would you call it? Like a COVID uh, 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 slump or something like that. They're just not ready. COVID cold, we can call it. Uh, was the, the big problem with Syracuse was their off-ball defense. Syracuse's off-ball defense has been bad as of late. And I remember a year ago, I think it was, or two years ago, 2019, I, I talked about it a lot, how Syracuse tends to get have a really hard time with the teams that can feed and that assist a lot of their goals. Cornell was one of those teams. And it's continuing. And I, I don't think it's a coaching thing. I think a lot of it's just personnel. You know, they end up having, at, at this stage here, our best defender is a LSM converted to close D. I think he actually did a pretty good job despite um, despite Nick Turn's huge point total. I think that Kennedy played him pretty well, and Nick Turn did a lot of that damage in weird situations or whatnot. But, yeah, it, that's not good. It's it, it's it's not good in the sense that the off-ball woes continue, and off-ball woes are probably some of the hardest things to fix. Where Cuse got beat on the dodges, that can be fixed. You can fix your help defensive package and things like that, but sometimes off-ball issues are a, a symptom of guys that just have a hard time tracking 
and then playing, doing both parts. It's kind of like chewing gum and walking at the same time. Playing off-ball defense is like that. You have to watch the ball. You have to know where you are in the slide scheme so that you can you know, work into the help defense package, but you also have to keep track of your man, and they had problems doing that. I'm hopeful they can fix that. Oddly, uh, let's see here. The good news uh, said they can correct it. And, and, and then I think the thing that might be even harder than correcting the defensive issues is finding playmakers at attack. Syracuse's attackmen were really bad in that game. Don't let the two and one and the one and two out of, out of Scanlon and, and Rafis fool you. Rafis did his damage in transition. Scanlon did his damage. He scored that one goal early in the game off the, the, the shorty. And then the next eight shots that he took were either saves or missed a cage. So the offense needs to fix that. And I don't know what the answer is. I've heard one of the things I had proposed, if, if they can't fix it come this weekend against Virginia, if, it's, if they struggle offensively at attack two weekends in a row, is you may end up having to look at legitimately swapping Dordovic and Scanlon. Now, you could make the argument, well, you could put Cook on the bench and put Dordovic down there, put Cook up at the midfield because he played midfield. I think Cook is a serviceable player that probably deserves time on the field. I'm just not sure he's a, a third attackman at this point. At least they haven't given him the ball and he hasn't had enough of the offense go through him for us to really see anything. And if he's not going to take it and make it happen, now is where we have a problem. So one of the things I thought that would work was obviously Dordovic's our best player. He could, he was handling Army's best pull early in that game. He was getting separation when he got dodges. So I feel like you put him down at attack, he can handle the polls. He, he's proved that. Scanlon was an All-American midfielder at Loyola. That might even be a better fit for him. So you swap Dordovic and Scanlon and then maybe put Hiltz down at attack. That is a very different look to your offense. Now you have Curry and Tromboli who can both kind of dodge and play play two-man game at the midfield with Scanlon playing off ball right at the high crease, letting them dodge down the alley and then getting, you know, being the guy that they bang it back to, which is where he's best. And you have Dordovic on attack to run and beat people, and then that would open things up for Hiltz and it would op- or, or Cook, whoever's playing attack. Having another creator down there would help them greatly. So that, that's my thought there, and I don't think that's going to happen. I think we're probably going to see a very similar, if not the same, Syracuse lineup. We may see Cook and Hiltz swap time a little bit more, so Hiltz may get more time down there on attack, but I don't think they're going to do anything crazy against Virginia, see what happens against UVA. If it still looks rough, then I think you'll see changes in uh, week three. Uh, guys that had big days scoring the rock. I mean, I need like a little graphic to slide in with some music for this one. And I'm just going to rattle off dudes uh, where they play and what they did in the games that they played this past weekend. Mike Robinson for Delaware in the game yesterday against St. Joe's. Nine goals in that three-goal win over St. Joe's. And I'm thinking it was like 16-13 or so. So he puts up nine of his team's goals. That's crazy. Jake Carraway, we already talked about Georgetown. Eight goals, one helper in a 16-1 to win over Nova. So he was good for over half of their offense in that game. Willie Graco, Wingate, D2 product. Six and six versus uh, in a 21-9 win over Montevallo. And I won't usually cover uh, blowout goal-scoring outputs like that where it's just an absolute blowout and this dude did that. Now, like, you know, look at the Georgetown one. That was a blowout, but that wasn't a 20-plus goal blowout. So, but Willie Greco, Greco, six and six. That was a great game. Joe Venazio, Coker, D2, five goals, four helpers, and a 17-5 win over Choen. Owen Consoletti, Limestone, another D2 kid, five goals, three helpers off just five shots in a 13-10 win over North Greenville. And North Greenville has looked good, actually. They've, they've, they're 0-3, but they gave Limestone a scare. 
and they've played all close games to some decent teams. So watch North Greenville as they move forward. But Limestone, Owen, Consoletti, they're in good shape with a dude who puts up five and three in a close game. Back to D1, Connor cursed for Rutgers. Three goals, four helpers, and a win over Penn State. That was huge in their win. They needed that legitimately. Without cursed, who knows what Rutgers is. But with cursed, Rutgers is potentially vying for one of those top three spots in the big. Mike Sowers for Duke. He got it going two and four. In their win over Towson, Brendan Nick turned four and three in their win over Syracuse for Army. Bowden Nichols five and one uh, for Barton in a one goal win over Anderson, whose Isaiah Hines put up six goals. Trey Edge for Shorter five goals, two helpers, and a two goal loss to Mars Hill. And then we got Southern Virginia and Hamden Sydney. They played like a shootout, twenty one six. Hamden Sydney won the game. This is D three action. Tennyson Schmidt for Hamden Sydney put up six goals and a helper. Chandler Westcott for Hamden Sydney put up four goals and three assists in that win. And then Jared Medwar went six and one for Southern Virginia in that loss. William Byer, Greensboro D3. He was eight and two in a 19-10 win over Birmingham Southern. Matt Moore, UVA, five goals in their win over Loyola. Daniel Maltz, five goals in Maryland's win over Michigan. And that's important because Wisnowskis and Bernhardt weren't your leading scorer in that blowout win. Maltz was. Now, blowout wins, you'll tend to see third, fourth options tear it up. That's a really good sign for Maryland that Maltz is already in midseason form here. Jimmy Perkins, big stat line against uh, for Robert Morris, the seventh-year senior. Two goals, three helpers, eight ground balls, and one caused turnover in their win over Colgate this weekend. Ryan Smith of Robert Morris in that same win, five goals. And then Tucker Dordovic, four goals and a helper against Army, all mostly in the first quarter. He was three goals in the first quarter, I think it was, four in the second, and then he had an assist somewhere in the game. Uh, so that's guys who scored the rock this weekend. Some teams that struggled playing off-ball defense. We already talked about Syracuse. Vanilla, vanilla, Villanova struggled on defense in general, but 12 of Georgetown's goals were assisted. So we got some off-ball woes for Villanova that they got to shore up. Syracuse, they allowed 18 goals to Army. 11 of them were assisted. So the off-ball issues continue for Syracuse for a third season in a row. Colgate, this is, this is the crazy one. Colgate, 13 of their 14 goals that they gave up in the one goal loss to Robert Morris were assisted. Actually, no, Colgate's goals, 13 of Colgate's 14 goals were assisted against Robert Morris. So Robert Morris, that might be the recipe for the rest of the SOCON to beat Robert Morris is dodge and feed, dodge and feed over and over. And then teams struggling to play on ball defense, Ohio State. They routinely ran by the Hopkins guys. Hopkins offered little little resistance at all to Dodgers in this game, especially early on in the first quarter. You just saw dudes go to the rack get a three feet of separation, no help came, scored goals. All three of their 14 goal, or all but three of Ohio State's 14 goals were unassisted, mostly off dodges and loose ball pickups. Uh, you know, kind of piggybacking off that and segueing into this next thing, Hopkins overall did not look good. Like Just like Syracuse looked great in the first quarter, didn't look good the rest of the game. Hopkins didn't look good at all in this game. And once again, COVID cold, you know, they didn't get a fall ball. They, they had a late entry into the spring, getting everybody together as well. So I'm not surprised at all in the end that they lost. I am surprised that they lost the way they did and that they, they looked so bad, but there were some positives to take from it. Epstein, that wasn't a positive, just a goal off four shots, didn't really get involved. But once again, COVID cold coming off in a season where he was injured and hobbled most of the time. So he's really trying to get his game legs back. Cole Williams, one goal off one shot running midfield. They move Williams up to midfield. Connor DeSimone, this is the bright spot. DeSimone looked really good 
at attack for Hopkins, generating offense, three goals and a helper, seven shots, a definite bright spot in that loss. And I think Epstein will be okay overall, and I think having Simone down at attack with Epstein is going to help them a lot. But they need other guys. Where was everybody else becomes the question for Hopkins. You have Zinn and Epstein. They each turned the ball over three times. Luckily, they can probably clean that up. But overall, Jack Keogh, he was a non-factor. Evan Zinn was a non-factor outside of the turnovers. He was a negative factor overall. So they need to clean that kind of stuff up, and they need to try to find that identity and get everybody involved. Same as Syracuse, though. They look terrible defensively, but all things that could potentially be improved, assuming they can also shore up their offensive issues. Random things that we want to talk about here. Face-offs. I, so far, have been a fan of the new face-off rules. I keep getting people asking me, what do you think of the new face-off rules? What do you think of the new face-off rules? I'm a fan. I don't have any statistics to to back this up. And normally, I I don't like to operate off of feelings. I think feelings feelings are necessary. But feelings are stupid uh, as it pertains to making decisions based off of them. And I'm making the decision off of my feelings in this case that I think I like the face-offs rule, rules. I feel like it has improved the 50-50 nature, even though it hasn't. There's still dudes that are just murking the face-offs overall. But I feel like you're getting a few less wins at the dot. And you're seeing these guys now progress into kicking the ball out to wings. Just teams that have really good face-off men and really good wing play are really killing it, I think, overall as well. But I think, especially where the face-off dot, it's evenly matched. You're seeing really good scrums in the middle of the field, and I think that was the intention. I think we've seen quite a bit of transition off face-offs already, albeit a lot of it's wings picking the ball up and booking up field now. So overall, I'm not a big fan of tinkering with the rules like crazy, but I feel like Last year, it took them forever to get the guys down, to get them set. It felt like it slowed the game down a little bit. And then you had a lot of just dudes just locked up in the middle of the field right there as they're trying to jockey for position on the clamp. I didn't like that, and I feel like this has done away with that. So I hope they don't tinker anymore. Let's just leave it like this for three years, see how it goes. But to me, so far, so good. Uh, Another thing we wanted to talk about, the COVID rust, you know. We talk about COVID rust, and I think that's been a real thing so far for certain teams. Cuse, for instance, they look terrible against Army. Army, for instance, against Virginia, cleared the ball terribly. Now, yes, UVA has an insane ride, but the level with which Army was not proficient in the clearing game was was astonishing, You know, where you're not clearing the ball even at a 50% clip. And then they turned that around and cleared the ball almost perfectly against Syracuse. Now, Syracuse is known for having a good ride. Didn't ride exceptionally well. Early on, though, Syracuse put some pressure on and Army handled it. So it was apparent right off the bat that having that week to work out the kinks helped Army. And uh, and hopefully it'll help Syracuse. Hopkins, same thing. They looked really rough. Syracuse and Hopkins, they both kind of got late starts. They both had some holdups here and there. Hopkins really badly. So I don't blame them. Denver, they struggled early. Uh, they also had late getting everybody together later than some of the other teams in the, in the country. They struggled against Utah, played well against Duke, albeit they blew the lead and lost the game, but it was still close. And then they got massacred by North Carolina. I don't put that massacre on them as much as the situation, just not playing well yet, but they seem to have shored things up and they've gotten two wins now under their belt that look good. So they're back to three and two Delaware. They had an early loss to the Mount and then they beat up on New Jersey it and you know, which they should have. And then they play St. Joseph's and win by three yesterday. They had 17 turnovers in that opening uh, game loss to the Mount. They only had 12 turnovers against St. Joe's. So is that maybe an indication that they're knocking off some rust? That's normal. More turnovers in your first game than your third game, but maybe, maybe COVID plays into that a little bit. Now, as we rip through the calendar, 
today's action, Wednesday. You're going to watch this on Wednesday. Uh, Sacred Heart and LIU, who cares? Mount St. Mary's uh, hosting Towson. That one I'm interested about because I'm continually interested about Towson and, and how they end up playing. That should be a very good game. That's at 5 p.m. today, and it does have a web stream. So if you go to Inside Lacrosse's D1 calendar, you can find the web stream to that game and watch that game tonight at 5 p.m., as I'm going to do. Friday, February 26th, we have Maryland at Penn State, our, you know, one of our first really big, the two re- most recent juggernauts of the big, the big 10. They face off Friday night in the only game Friday at 5.30 p.m. That will be on either the Big Ten Network or Big Ten Plus or whatever it's called, so you'll be able to watch that there. Don't complain about paying for it. Just be glad that you could pay for a game uh, to watch Maryland and Penn State play each other here on a Friday night when there's no other lacrosse action. Let's see. What else we got here? I'm only going to mention the ones that I think are worth mentioning. I'm curious to see how Utah does against Loyola. That'll be a really good test for Utah to play Loyola. Now we're in like midseason for Utah just about in terms of how many games they've played, and Loyola's got a couple of good games under their belt. So that'll be a good test for them, both teams, honestly. And I like Loyola in that matchup, obviously, assuming it goes down. Air Force at Duke. The game everybody loves to watch. Now, granted, it's a little different where normally it's one of Duke's first two or three games. So now I think this is probably Duke's fourth game at this point, maybe even their fifth. So this isn't your normal scenario where Air Force is playing Duke early. Duke has gotten their scrimmages in and out of the way. They've kind of worked out the kinks, and I think they're going to put it on Air Force. Not put it on Air Force. I'm I'm saying five, six, eight goals, similar to what you saw Denver do against them a couple weeks ago or a week, week and a half ago. Let's see. What else we got? Like I said, St. St. John's at Georgetown. Can Georgetown hold another team to under three goals? That'll be great to see. High point at North Carolina again this weekend. It was a three-goal game the last time out. High point kept losing the lead, you know, kept going down big and then chirping back into the game to make it close. I like to say chirping back in. I don't say chipping. I know it's it's not it's not a me misspeaking for some, some reason. I just say chirping. Stony Brook and at Hofstra, that's going to be a very good game. And we get to see uh, Notre Dame open up. I am really excited about Notre Dame. I know a lot of people aren't, or, 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 or a lot of people had Notre Dame finishing worse in the Big East. Let me see if there's uh, – it's not here – in the, in the uh, ACC. I think Notre Dame is a legit ball club, and I think that right now, especially with Syracuse getting beat up by Army, I think that North Carolina, Virginia, and Duke right now are playing better than all of the other Big uh, ACC teams. Why do I want to say Big East over and over? But Syracuse and Notre Dame are not too far behind. You could listen, even though Cuse got beat by Army, it is not a foregone conclusion that they're going to lose to Virginia this weekend. Syracuse could absolutely welcome Virginia into the dome and then beat them. That's just how these games go. And Virginia could do this the same if they were the team that was on uh, down and out. And remember, I believe I saw someone post this, and I don't know if it's true. I'm just going to assume it is that I think Virginia, the year they won the national championship, started the season out one and two, and then they win the national championship that year. I'm not trying to say Syracuse is going to win the national championship. I'm just saying don't get on the ACC teams for beating each other up. Don't get on these teams for losing a couple of early games in a COVID season, especially where you're playing against teams that have already played where you haven't. So with Notre Dame, what happens if they lose to Bobby Moe? Does that mean oh, they really are the worst team in the ACC? No. It does not mean that, and they will still upset a team or two in the ACC even if they were to lose to Bobby Moe. I don't think they're going to, though. I think they're loaded on defense. I think they're loaded at midfield and at attack, and now they have one of the best face-off guys in the game in Gallagher. I like Notre Dame's chances against Robert Morris at home. 
the big one this weekend might be the biggest game this weekend, other than let's say maybe Penn State, Maryland is uh, Virginia at Syracuse at the Dome. 6 p.m. It's our nightcap game on Saturday, and it, it seems to be the only late game as I'm looking through these on Saturday. And then we have Hopkins at Michigan and Towson at Richmond, crap like that. Sunday, nothing big. Jacksonville at Navy. We get to see Navy open it up. And hopefully, like I've kind of become a little bit of a Jacksonville fan, so I'm rooting for Jacksonville. Navy, oddly enough, has one of the best. I think they have the fifth ranked freshman class on campus right now. So Navy may surprise some people because in terms of all the service academies, Navy had the best recruiting class. In addition, they all lost their seniors, but Navy brings in a really healthy, really talented young class. So that's the action that we have slated for this weekend. I'm going to get the heck out of here. And that'll be it. As always, thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. We will do the Saturday morning live stream at 10 a.m. before the games kick off on Saturday. We've been going about 45 minutes or so, but it starts right at 10 a.m. I get right into starting to preview the games and talking about stuff and answering questions. So please join us. So far, the first one was the most successful. Second one, the least successful. The one we did last weekend was right back at good. We had at 1.42, 44 people or so watching at the same time. So let's try to get that number up. I'm trying to get that number up above 100 at a single time. I think we got up to 50 or 60 watching at a single time on the one a uh, couple weeks ago. So yeah, live stream Saturday morning. That's where we'll really dive in and preview these games and talk about them a little bit more in depth, talk about who to watch and what matchups to watch in those games. And then Sunday we do the, and, and we will do the Sunday recap show because there's not a lot of games on Sunday to recap. So Sunday's recap show will be early in the morning on Sunday, recapping all of Saturday's games. So that's it. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. Like subscribe, hit the notification bell, go to laxfactor.com to support us beyond that. You can get swag there. Look at our videos and crap like that there. And then if you're an audio listener, our audio home is anchor.fm forward slash laxfactor. You can ask us audio questions there. We'll air them here on uh, Sunday's recap show, or maybe on today's show, whenever the hell we decide to do it. And that's it. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. And Hoost is out. 